Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Arnold Hanan Block is back on the show today. We decided to continue our conversation after the response that we got after the first time that he was on the show. Uh, it was quite a response, a big response. Uh, from a lot of people who found it very um, interesting or validating from their experience also uh, being raised during apartheid in South Africa and others um, who, I guess, like the idea of the establishment and how it used to be, didn't like that we were talking about it as having had a negative impact on anyone. So those were interesting comments, unexpected, and some quite vitriolic, but we wanted to have a conversation about why those things might happen, why people might be responding every which way to something that occurred a number of years ago, but um, with the way it's responded to, it's as though it just happened yesterday. So Arnold is a therapist and a colleague of mine, and um, we're happy to just continue the discussion and to try to understand the response to our first conversation. Here's Arnold now. Well, welcome everyone to um, our second episode uh, with Arnold Block. Arnold, I refer to as Hanan. It's a different name that he goes by that I'm used to. So if you hear me saying that, that's why. But professionally, he goes by Arnold. Um, we had a really interesting conversation during our first, what turned out to be our first episode. And uh, I wanna make sure that we have an opportunity because Arnold and I have, have been in contact since then um, to be able to talk about the responses that came from this episode, which were fascinating and um, illuminating uh, some, disturbing and depressing, and others really very um, supportive where people felt heard and understood, and a lot of political discourse, which is interesting because that was a departure from what we were talking about and why we were talking, because we were talking about the psychology of indoctrination and its after effects, and also within us, a social psychological context. But I think people, people heard what they wanted to hear. And uh, they, they heard that we were taking sides and it was a whole political discussion. Um, so before I talk about some of the things that, uh, that people responded with, um, which I then shared with Arnold, because I thought positive and negative, you know, these are things that I, I wanted you to be able to also see in real time how people were responding. Uh, I'm curious uh, about your responses to the response to it before we get into some of the specifics and also what else you might like to cover today. All right. Thanks, Rachel. As far as the uh, some of the responses went, uh, it was, um, frankly, it saddened me um, somewhat to, to read about um, some people experiencing our conversation i think as an attack on their on their identity as south africans uh and which saddened me because that's not the spirit with which i do anything in my life really it's and i and i think that's true of you as well 
but it, it's, it says something about what happens when you step on certain sensitivities. Um, from my point of view, we were talking about indoctrination. And just to clarify, for, for those who may have felt defensive or attacked, uh, the conversation was not intended to be an attack on, on South Africans in particular, but just it's an, it's, an, it's an attempt to understand how indoctrination works. And we have the understanding, and I hope any audience who hears this would have an understanding that we're, we're exploring indoctrination and looking at how human beings are vulnerable, no matter where they are. One, one person said something about um, something to do with um, all countries have their problems and leave us alone or something like that. And, and, and you know, I say to that, absolutely, all countries uh, uh, have uh, indoctrinational forces, influential forces going on in, right here in the United States. It's happening, you know, as, as we speak. There's a massive media effort to, to sway people one way or another, we're exposed to it all the time. So my sharing my story about South Africa was just, uh, is, is my way of trying to share with, with other people how indoctrination works. Uh, I'm well aware of the fact that if I were living in some other country, it may have taken some other form. What made South Africa, I think, particularly useful as a, as a situation in which to, to look closely at indoctrination is that you had a clearly defined program of racial indoctrination under the title of apartheid that was, that was clearly not just a, a loosely knit together social phenomenon. It was, it was a clearly defined program designed to create class differentiation, to oppress the majority population, and I, I think that's undeniable. So anyone, anyone still living there now, simply would be not telling themselves the truth if they if they denied the fact that that's what apartheid was. Now, are people fixing the problem by starting to examine their own biases, examine their own confirmation bias, trying to develop new? feelings towards uh, between each other, not only whites to blacks, but black people to white people and colored people and Indian people. There's a whole myriad of people living in South Africa. And I think it's fair to say that, that in general, human beings have a tendency towards um, xenophobia or suspicion or distrust of, of that which they don't know, that which they're unfamiliar with. That's just a, that's just a fundamental human phenomenon. So we're all you, if, if you want to put it in global terms, we're all struggling with how to overcome what I think is the human, um, I like to say that we're wired for indoctrination, that human beings are fundamentally wired for indoctrination. And there are reasons for that, that have to do with the brain itself, that have to do with a certain phenomenon we may get into, if you think, Rachel, like what is splitting? What is confirmation bias? How does it work? But these are the things that cause us all to be vulnerable to persuasion. And um, just one other point I want to make about that is um, that, unfortunately, when you see people not able to really hear the conversation we had last time and not able to 
just openly consider what is being shared in, a, in an unfortunate way, it confirms the power of indoctrination because the fact that a person would automatically, automatically think they're being attacked and be defensive and want to say things like, well, you don't live here anymore. What, what do you know anyway? Or, or uh, you know, that kind of thing. It speaks to how powerful, for example, nationalist indoctrination is. You know, that's why, why do people become defensive? Is that beautiful Zen um, challenge? I think I may have said last time. I love it. It, say, it says that the Zen challenge is: Can you keep your heart open in hell? That's Which is great. beautiful, and it, yeah. it shows how difficult it is for people to keep their hearts open. We might add their minds open when they're hearing things that challenge their their, their identity. And I think that's my understanding of what we saw there: was we saw responses in which people felt threatened, felt challenged, and were not able to actually understand that this is an inquiry into indoctrination. It's not an attack on a particular group of people. So maybe if, if there are people still engaged in this conversation out there, you know, I would hope that they would um, hear what's, what I'm saying right now, which is that uh, could they take a look at, at what are they defending? And, uh, and are they open to just being able to say, it's very difficult for people to say, you know, maybe I was caught up in a social movement that influenced me, that caused me to despise and hate other people, and that I no longer want to do that. And that's a beautiful thing. I mean, obviously, one of the wonder, most wonderful things about human beings is their capacity for, for introspection and forgiveness, to forgive themselves, to forgive others. You know, I love that, uh, that quote, uh, who said it, you know, to, to err is human, to give, forgive is divine. I think it was Ernest Hemingway, I think, said that to err is human, to forgive is divine. And that's what I hope would ultimately be the spirit with which our conversation could be taken, that we're looking at how do we forgive not only those that have hurt us, but how do we forgive ourselves? And that's what I was trying to share with you last time, was how hard it has been for me to forgive myself right. for the atrocious ways in which I treated Black people, thought about black people, even to the point where I actually thought black people were not capable of love. And I'm ashamed to, 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 to say that, but that is how I used to think. Now I forgive myself because I know that's not what I, that was not my essence. That mm -hmm. was a kind of a falsely imposed belief system, a, a, a false belief system imposed on me, which, which I was vulnerable to, so. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you were very open, very open and very honest about the challenges that you had where you had to somehow uh, disconnect your yourself, your conscience, your true wiring from what you were hearing and incorporate what you were learning, I think, because you had to and also because it was done in a repeated way and from when you were young. and and then can re-engage yourself, be more aligned with yourself, which is something that I, that I talk to a lot of people about, about how, you know, if they were raised in a family of white supremacists and they, they leave and, you know, fall in love with someone who is from a different nationality, a different race, and they realize that that was never who they were. Uh, but it, it felt good at the time. It felt connecting at the time. It felt like that was the way to keep yourself strong and that was the way to keep yourself safe. Um, and that was a very kind of um, satisfying way of dividing the world, um, which 
I know a lot of kids do feel like mm, it, it's something that they need in order to be able to feel good and feel, feel powerful and also to stay connected to their family and to their community. And once people make a departure and they don't need that as much, they can open themselves up to different realities or their own reality uh, as scary as it might be and as incremental it can be in terms of the steps there, but they still get there with some nervousness and, uh, and also some worry about being abandoned or pushed away by the people who had originally indoctrinated them um, and didn't indoctrinate them necessarily always on purpose for a game plan, but really because they believed it themselves or they were raised with it. Um, I, I wanted to be able just for the people who haven't had a chance to read through some of the responses, um, I wanted to be able to, to talk a little bit about them, but that's not really going to be the whole focus of the show. And I really do want to get back to some of the things that you were talking about that help with the conceptualization, the, the splitting and confirmation bias and how we're all vulnerable. But just so you know, there were I mean, there were hundreds of responses that were very, very positive. And again, that, that's not necessarily why we do this. We do this as a way to, to educate, not to get likes. <laughs> you know what I mean? You give likes, that's fine. That's sort of a, a nice outcome, but that's not the purpose. But what I noticed suddenly was that there were these responses that were just expletives, just people just swearing at me uh, with lots of explanation points. And I thought, that's so interesting because I, I don't know what I said <laughs> that could have been so offensive. When you're just talking about your own experience, you were talking about your own experience and you were talking also about the challenges you had and the, the growth you made. And, uh, and I'm not quite sure what, what was expletive kind of necessary about that. But the other part was that I was, I was told because my name is connected with the show that I was told multiple times to, and this is a quote I heard or I read many times, to stay in my corner, uh, which was fascinating to me. I, that's not a, a term that I was familiar with, but I understood it. Also that, I'm just reading some of these things off my phone right now, that I needed to understand that white people had it as hard as black people during apartheid and I should learn my history before I speak publicly. Um, that there is corruption now and why don't I talk about that? And by the way, we did talk about that. Mm, we um, did. Yeah. And telling me that I was dredging up the past and that's just to kind of stoke a fire mm. and why can't liberals like me leave things alone? The other part was because um, I'm a Californian and California has its own problems. Why am I not paying attention to those? As though our brain is only wired to care about one thing at a time. <laughs> but also the other part that was so interesting to me was it would be a scary world to me if people just paid attention to what was happening in their own backyard. Um, and so, yeah, I do care about what's happening in California, but California is a very tiny percent of the, the population in a very large world, which we're also allowed to care about. And sometimes change is made because people from across the globe care about what's happening. Um, just a little bit more. Oh, that uh, people then 
posted links to my professional Facebook page saying that they would no longer recommend me as a therapist. Hmm. Um, and that I, if I'm not a South African, I should not be talking about life in South Africa, even though I, I wasn't talking about it. You were talking about being raised there and you're from South Africa. Um, and then the other, the other one was, oh, and this person who said that I was talking about life in South Africa, even though I knew nothing about it, that comment got a lot of likes, which was so interesting. Just so for people listening, when you get comments about things, that comment meant that the person didn't listen to the show. Mm. It would have known that that didn't happen, mm. but a lot of people then went and liked that comment. So there's this sort of whole layer of um, misrepresentation and then a validation of the misrepresentation. And then it just sort of goes down the rabbit hole. The one that was very difficult was uh, for me was that um, we were engaging in propaganda. You and I were engaging in propaganda. Mm. And that um, we should, as Jews, be sensitive to that because that's what Hitler did during the Holocaust. Wow. That was a kicker. Um, and so it is, it is not true. When, you are talk, you, when you're saying, this happened to me, mm. that's not propaganda. That's you telling your story. Exactly. So I, just, I wanted just to give people those, also knowing that that came within kind of a, a huge... Um, grouping of people who just said thank you and yes and it is it's still a mess but that doesn't negate the fact that it was quite horrible and we're still dealing with the after effects mm. in every direction and every nationality and everyone who responded said you know thank you and thank you to Hanan for sharing his story and being so open it's a struggle many of us deal with uh-huh so the, there was that too, but I, I just, yeah. it was very, it was very interesting. Really? It, it, mm. it triggered a nerve mm. and mm. things have not necessarily been healed. Mm. And I'm trying to not feel too disheartened by the fact that there are some people who just have this knee-jerk reaction of anger and defensiveness um, as though they or their country or their people were being attacked. Mm. Uh, which is very far from what was happening. And so I'm just wondering to, to ask you about that. What do you think that was about? Well, I, I do find that very sad, but it, is, it's, it says something about human nature. Um, many, hum I think it's quite natural for people, and let me say to you South Africans, it's natural for people all over the world, not just in South Africa, for people to split reality into black or white. It's very natural because it's actually the most, unfortunately, I've studied splitting quite a bit. I find it very interesting as, as a psychotherapist. And, and I like the idea that splitting is unfortunately very economical. It doesn't take a lot of time or energy to just say, go back to your corner or you shouldn't be talking about uh, South Africa when you're in America or one person said, these people don't know what they're talking about. Now that's 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 a very energy saving, simplistic way of responding, uh, and unfortunately, most people, because we're so overwhelmed in general with so much information coming at us, most people will resort to the most simple energy saving ways of processing anything that's going on with them. So, 
I think that's one way to understand what happened is that there was a certain group of people who felt they were being attacked, mm -hmm. who split reality into black or white. We became the bad people in the world. They then could, with righteous indignation, which I think of as like a kind of a drug, you know, people love the feeling of righteous indignation. It's mm -hmm. a high. Mm -hmm. It actually probably pumps dopamine, you know. Mm -hmm. And so you get people then who, who turned us into bad people so that they could then feel totally vindicated. But I want to invite anyone listening to this to, to consider that really if we're going to help our, our world heal, we have to all try to avoid splitting as much as we can. We have to, if it's it requires more energy, it requires more patience, and it requires love to say, okay, what, what is the story that this guy is telling? And is there something that we can all learn from it so that we can become better people? Mm -hmm. So that, it was very sad to me, but I, I know living in America that, you know, we have looking at our political system, we have lots of people splitting reality into black or white, just blaming each other for, for, for what they said, what they didn't say, what, what they're doing, what they're not doing. When in fact, the challenge that we face in this country and everywhere is, is, is the energy take consuming process and with patience and love and humility, mm -hmm. we, we need a, a, a humble process of being able to sit down with people we disagree with and try to ask the, the more important questions, which is what does this nation actually need? Mm -hmm. How do we solve the problems of this country? Whether it's even controversial issues like abortion or gun control, all these things that people get split on, we, we will always be in conflict if we're not able to say, wait a second, there are intelligent people on the other side of the position that I'm on. They also have a mind, they have a life experience. And is there some way we can find some type of common ground where compromises can be made? And so that's the spirit in which I was talking about South Africa. Right, right. And, um, and I think what we received, what you got and what I got too was, was the responses on the negative end. I mean, glad to hear there were lots of people that appreciated the spirit, which is great. That's very nice. But on the negative end, uh, my way of understanding that is you have splitting taking place, a quick defensive response. And that's usually what people will say when they're in a split state is they will just say, you don't know anything. Um, you have no valid position. I don't want to hear it. And then um, what seals the deal if I can just finish this point, is what I call confirm. When I'm not, I call what we know is called confirmation bias. And the way confirmation bias seals the deal is that once a person has decided upon a particular ideology or political stance, they then unfortunately will actually deliberately ignore any information that might challenge that viewpoint and only seek out information that supports what they're feeling and what they're believing. And that causes the divide to widen even more. So it becomes virtually impossible for people to learn from each other unless they happen to already agree. I mean, I consider that to be a very serious problem in, in terms of the, it sounds dramatic to say, but the future of humanity, really. You know, we have to find a way to overcome that tendency to split and then seal the deal with confirmation bias. Otherwise, we won't learn anything.
Right. And in, in that spirit, I want to say to those, to those South Africans who felt offended, I do want to say to you that I'm listening to you. I understand how it might feel for you to, to um, be living in a country where you're, maybe you're trying to do better, maybe you're trying to heal the gap. There is corruption now still on, 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 as I said last time, on the part of the black community. It's not a simple white people are bad and black people are good at all situation. It's much more complex than that because corruption and manipulation takes place everywhere, which I think is why you have this, the show you have. Mm -hmm. That's why you're doing it, right? To try to enlighten people as to how insidious uh, indoctrination is and that's why I was so glad to be a part of this it's not designed to malign people but to help us all become better and more inclusive but that takes that takes energy patience humility and a certain amount of self-discipline as well yeah it's a hard thing it's a hard thing right it's it's harder for some than for others and I would also say it's harder for some at some points in their lives mm. um mm. Right. When when they're just coming out of it or when there's something that's knocked them down and they're feeling powerless, I think then they they connect with that piece of themselves or the piece of their history that makes them feel powerful again. You know, just having that righteous indignation about something or whatever else. Um, and so I I look at it, as I'm sure you do, from this psychological perspective, uh, that it's about. South Africa and apartheid and the government then and the government now, but it's also really not. Um, because we could have been talking about any country and you just happen to be from South Africa. Uh, and so we're talking about, as you said, human nature and that we're all vulnerable to persuasion. I think the other part is the word propaganda. And I was looking it up last night because I was thinking it's a very interesting thing. When people say that people are promoting propaganda because Propaganda is not about sharing facts and it's not about sharing your own experience. I suppose it's something that does threaten people. So they ascribe this sort of negative um, and purposeful and dangerous meaning to it. Mm. But I was looking at this quote um, by Aldous Huxley who said, um, the propagandist purpose is to make one set of people forget that certain other sets of people are human. Mm, I love that. Yeah. And I think that that really fit for what you were talking about, not how we were approaching it, not what we were saying, but how you were highlighting that that was a part of the conditioning. Uh, and I think that that's very powerful. Right. Now, that's that certainly is. Um, that's exactly what um, I would say my I feel is the, the most important life goal to me at this stage of my life is to is to restore is to fight against dehumanization mm. because it's it's a terrible thing it's and and it's happening everywhere so yeah and i think also with the knee-jerk reactions and with the just the people who just swore at me and which is interesting a lot of the times they swore it was spelled wrong which i shouldn't care about but you know i'm thinking that's not even how you spell that word but uh, like that mattered. But I was wondering um, just about that because again, looking at it psychologically, my response is, what are they afraid of? Mm. Mm. Why is this a scary topic? Yeah. Why do they have to attack back because they're feeling attacked? What is it about their world 
their life, their sense of reality, their need to remember it a certain way or think about it a certain way or have the world see it a certain way that feels threatened by someone just telling their story. I found that so interesting. Yeah, you know, I remember when I lived in South Africa, because I was thoroughly indoctrinated into South African nationalism, I remember feeling a lot of animosity towards the United States for the, for the boycotts of South African products, for not allowing us to participate in the Olympic Games, in not just America, but the, there was, a, there was a, an agreement among Western nations where we were, we were isolated, you know, we were basically told that you're bad, you're a bad country. There were many countries that wouldn't do business with South Africa. And uh, I remember feeling very upset with those, uh, with those countries. Maybe there are still people living in South Africa who still feel that way. They may still feel that um, they were, were sort of um, targeted for uh, being maligned and, and isolated. When and maybe they maybe they feel racism is perfectly justified. And, and one of the ways that people and I've actually heard South Africans say this: some people will say, "Well, are things any better now? Now you have black domination. Now you have black." manipulation of the population, which is actually true, you know, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't still all be trying to um, counter ideological indoctrination and racism of any kind, bigotry of any kind, right? But, you know, so some of the comments you received, I suspect, might come from people who actually are still thinking to themselves that apartheid was better than what exists today. There would be those and then there would be those who um, are involved in the struggle to make South Africa a better place and, and who may feel, you know, what does an American have to say about that? It's a little bit like the way Israelis feel when they're told how they should handle the Arab problem, the Israeli-Arab problem. They often say to Americans, you know, you don't live here. You don't understand what we're actually going through and what it's like to have terrorists at our doorstep trying to kill us, you know, just stay out of our business. So, you know, you get that. There's a whole range of, of, of things. But, you know, and if you saw Brene Brown's uh, wonderful TEDx talk on vulnerability, which, by the way, is really worthwhile for everybody to see. Brene Brown is a social scientist who's written some great books, Daring Greatly. And, and she talks about what happens to any person whenever they take a position of leadership. She described that even though her TED talk on vulnerability was a was a had millions of hits and she, she became quite, you know, uh, uh, very much appreciated. She talked about a lot of the negative comments that people wrote about her talk, which had nothing to do with the talk itself. They talked about her being fat, her being ugly. And all she was actually talking about was how important it is for a person to be able to be vulnerable. Because in being vulnerable, you get to you get at a deeper level of honesty, and she shared in a follow-up talk, which is a Netflix talk that's really worth seeing. How she said, if any person is going to try to take a position of leadership and make a strong statement about anything, they should know they're going to be attacked, and it's complicated as to why that happens. Some people might be thinking, you know, what right does a woman have taking a position of authority on anything? Maybe they've got some some chauvinistic stuff going on. You know, there's all kinds of 
reasons why, but I, I have found it helpful to accept the idea that if I'm going to take any position of a leadership or authority, there are going to be people who will attack me, either because I'm a Jew or because I, I, I have no business expressing my opinion or whatever it is. All I can do is to try and respond in a loving and reasonable way and, and, and say, you know, I'm attempting to be a part of, of, of a solution, not attempting to make things worse. But that's, you know, it's, it's some of your, your people listening might want to t- take a look at, at Brene Brown's uh, TED Talk on vulnerability. It's, it's very interesting. Also, th- what you're talking about, too, is that now with people's access to the facelessness of responding online, um, they can get very cruel and very personal and say things they wouldn't say to somebody's face right? Uh, and feel that they can get away with it. And I think also... I, you know, I have this with some of the people in my field who sort of use their websites or whatever else as a platform to put other people down in this field, even though there's just a few of us. Um, because it could be that there is uh, this sense that they wish they were the ones who had said it first or whatever else. It's often sort of a, a personal thing. Yeah. But I, I, I remember this other quote, and if someone listening knows, where it came from, please let me know because I like to give attribution wherever I can. But um, uh, no one looks good while making someone else look bad. Right. Right. I've thought about kind of saying that, or I say it in my head to colleagues who want to put each other down. And uh, but I think for some some people it's very personal, and other times it it satisfies this feeling of power. And it's misplaced. It's it's where they are not getting it in their lives in other ways. I think so. They're sort of, it's like low hanging fruit. Like let me just talk about her appearance. <laughs> you know, what? You know, it has nothing to do with anything. But okay, if that made that made you feel better in that moment to do that. Fine. But I think people who are aware enough know that you know you just had to get that off your chest because you weren't feeling so good about yourself in that moment. And that's yeah. probably where that came from. But yeah, you need a, a thick skin. And, and sometimes also you get a response where you think you're being very um, kind of measured and fair and apolitical, but people respond in a political way, which again makes me think that there's just so much emotion and so much fear, which is exactly what we were talking about, that, that the effects of what happens in certain countries and certain upbringing, certain indoctrination lives on. And uh, it, it lives on sometimes in this very powerful way, splits off and goes in different directions, but it's still an outcome and a response to the original indoctrination, I, I believe, or else there wouldn't be still so much emotion around it if it hadn't been such an intense experience at the time. Mm. Well, that makes sense to me. Um... It reminds me of a wonderful quote. I don't think I shared this with you last time, Rachel, by um, John Bolton. Uh, and I'm not sure if it's the John Bolton who's presently the, the, um, has a position in, in the United States government. But, but the quote says, it says, that, um, it says that a belief is not merely something the mind possesses. It's something that possesses the mind. Mm-hmm. Belief is not something, merely something the mind possesses. It's something that possesses the mind. That is a very insightful thing. 
and 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 so that's another way to understand really what happened is when when people have a certain belief they literally can't consider anything outside of that thing that possesses them and if it's if it's a self-defensive position that they're into yeah you know self-protective position maybe they do feel ashamed of something you know and then they literally just unable to think about it in any other way and what i what i actually want to say to south africans uh, and i have good friends there is I, I don't think we have anything to be ashamed of i just think we were all part of a social program that was designed to bring about certain results and we now have to try to learn from it and, and and share with the world that there is a better way and that way is to treat all people with dignity as much as we can and um you know there's nothing wrong with that as long as we are willing to be accountable and 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 the same thing is true right here in this country i i hold uh, I hold Donald Trump accountable for some of the awful things he said about Hillary Clinton during the election cycle, and I hold her accountable for some of the awful things that she said about uh, about Trump. I don't think that they were teaching us anything useful or decent, and that's what I'm about, is to try to elevate the conversation to a level where we're actually all treating each other with greater respect. But you can't do that if you're indoctrinated. Mm. Interesting. Right. No, you can't. You can't. And what's also true when we were talking just briefly about the, the issues with the government there now, that there is this sense uh, with some of the people who wrote in that, um, that we should know that it's corrupt. But there, that would, to me, be an assumption, an unfortunate assumption that when things are kind of uh, at one end of sort of a pendulum swing, that sometimes it does swing as far out on the other side to an extreme um, before it hopefully finds someplace steady in the middle where there is a sense of, um, kind of fairness, equality, a measured way of thinking, being able to take action as opposed to just reaction. And so I do think that, there, that it's in a period of reaction right now, like a lot of governments. And I just wonder what's going to happen with, uh, you know, when we have our next president, how much the person is going to be able to take action or it's going to be a reaction to what we have now. But that's also human nature. Oh, it takes tremendous um, wisdom, self-discipline, self-awareness to to bring about what you're talking you know, about. Um, and unfortunately, uh, it, unfortunately, our political system doesn't tend to promote wise people. Mm. It promotes people who are capable of being in a dog-eat-dog world and, and winning. Mm -hmm. But that's the sad thing about, about the election process as it, as it exists right now. A, a, a person who has really a deep wisdom and is coming from from a loving place. I think would just get crushed in the in our political system. They literally wouldn't be able to 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 rise to the top unless there's a real change in the electorate, because the the the, the process requires people to be to be black and white, require and and to attack others, and that's only a certain kind of person that is comfortable being in that role. Right. 
But that's how I look at it. I agree. I'm, I'm sure we've all met people we wish would be in charge of the country, but they say, no, there's no way. <laughs> I would never do that. Right. Not who I am. And yes, I'll be destroyed. Mm. Um, you know, the, the other part that, that's so interesting about what you're talking about, about um, how we're all vulnerable to persuasion, which you were saying at the beginning, um, I'm sure there is an evolutionarily kind of salient sense about why that is um, and how then it also gets us into trouble. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about, about that kind of along this spectrum that there's a, there must be a purpose for it and then how it can be taken advantage of and where to kind of know to draw the line to kind of try to stay in line with who you are or come back to something that's yeah. more in line with you. I love that question because I always think about the uh, the evolutionary benefits of of you know various human characteristics. So my understanding, um, and by the way, um, there's a couple of interesting books uh, out, you know, by that guy Harari. One is called Sapiens, and one is called um, Oh right, Yuval Harari. Yuval Harari, yeah, uh, yeah, well, I have Sapiens. He does but... a rather interesting job of i think the other one is called homo deus is the next one and he does a great job of explaining how so many things about us as human beings have come into into play and it's it's a wonderful perspective but uh, there's another great book uh, by the by the um actually the brother of sasha baron cohen that kind of wacky wacky uh you know European, uh, english comedian he has a brother who's a neuroscientist and uh, and quite brilliant. And he wrote a book which is called the I think it's called the Neurology of Evil, something like that, to do with evil. And what he describes, which I think will be an answer, he says that we have a, a short, a, a slow thinking and a fast thinking system in in our brains, and that's an evolutionary function. Meaning there's a part of us that's able to respond very quickly to danger. And we have to, we have to make quick decisions if we were on a hunting expedition thousands of years ago and there was suddenly an attack of, you know, gorillas on, 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 on a tribe, you know, you'd have, there'd be a lot of quick decisions that have to be made, right, for survival purposes. And then we have a slow thinking system, which is capable of really thinking things through and with all the subtle nuances, you know, but he says, unfortunately, there are times when people use their fast thinking system for situations that really require slow thinking. If they use their slow thinking system for situations that require fast thinking, they, they may not survive because if somebody attacks you in a dark alley, you don't want to be spending too much time thinking of what your options are. You know, you need to yeah. think that. But, but the other danger is that when we are thinking fast, when we should be thinking slow, we will end up with quick hostile responses like you experienced in your in your podcast because the fast thinking system is basically in a state of quick preservation self-preservation so the challenge for for all of us is to try to discern what is what is a threat and what is just an imagined threat right mm -hmm. and, and, and if one is feeling threatened the the enlightened question which i i really would love people to ask more is why am I feeling threatened? What is the threat to myself? So for example, um, 
I find most people get their news from one media source or another. They either go to, to MSNBC or to CNN or KPFK if it's radio, or they go to Fox. And they basically won't take it any further than that. And if you really probe why that is, you'll find that most people don't want to be confused. They don't want to spend that extra time that's involved in a slow thinking process. Partially because they're overwhelmed anyway. It may also have to do with the group that they already belong to. Mm -hmm. So, for example, it's known because of some contacts I have. I know there are actually a lot more people in Hollywood that are actually Republicans, but they won't say it because they're afraid of not getting any work. They literally won't get jobs if they come out with, with pro-Republican ideas. So they tend to be an underground movement because the group pressure of the liberal community that they're living in doesn't allow them to express themselves. And the same may be true in other places where it's, where it's the reverse. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, where, where liberal people may be in parts of America where they're afraid to express themselves. Mm -hmm. So, but, the, but I think the, the higher level question is what is the fear? So, so what if you got more and if you try to understand what the other side is saying and you unindoctrinated or depropagandized yourself? Now, that's why I love the question, can you keep your heart open in hell? Mm -hmm. and, and why it's so important to understand that we are in an indoctrinated state all the time. Mm -hmm. So that to me is one of the things uh, that I, I frankly personally strive for. It, it's quite hard for me to listen to KPFK because, for example, their idea of many things to me is so far, so far left that it's quite hard for me, but I'm still determined to not give into, into confirmation bias and, and splitting within myself that I, I really make myself, I mean, for example, as a Jew, KPFK, maybe I'm getting too political right now, I'm not sure, but they talk about Israel as if Israel has no reason, no basis for existing at all. Mm. They're not even talking about the difficulty of of the settlement problems, you know what I mean? They're just, right, right. and it's hard for me to hear that, but I, I, I am determined to understand what people are saying, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? So that's how I think we have to try to not allow ourselves to fall prey to that idea of, of you know, being possessed by a belief mm -hmm. that enables you to not consider any other options. And the reason it's so important, I think, is because it's the only way we're going to grow as a society that really is able to hear things that we find difficult and maybe maybe glean something from it. Right. Okay. I'm taking notes while you're talking. You're triggering so many thoughts. Um, actually, one that is uh, just a family story that I'm now remembering um, when um, my father's father moved from uh, Romania to Scranton, Pennsylvania, because some people from his village, his poor village, learned that they could come and they could give out some water or rags to the coal miners and kind of eke out a living. And so suddenly these people were coming by boat to Rome, from Romania to Scranton, mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, of all places, and so that's where my dad was raised. In fact, he, he, he liked it there to a certain degree, even though it was virulently anti-Semitic at times. Um, but when he met my mom in college, she moved back. They had two young kids. They had me here in California. She started teaching. She wanted to teach uh, Braille. 
she wanted to learn it and teach it. And so she started teaching Braille in the school system there. But in order to teach in the school system there at the time, this was in the fifties, uh, she had to sign a piece of paper that said that she promised to vote Republican. Wow. And that was the only way to keep her job. Mm. And she was raised in a very liberal household, mm. kind of socialist liberal, and and uh, with you know college professors and whatever else she was raised with. And um, she remembers going home that day from work and saying to my father, "Listen, honey, I I know how much <laughs> you like it here, but if you want me to work here, we, I think we need to move." Um, and he he said, "What are you talking about?" He had no idea. If that's what was happening, and but that is what's happening, and but you are you weren't supposed to also talk about it. But here, I think, you know, um, sixty-seven years later, I think I can mention it safely. Um, but I I also think that uh, when you were talking about think thinking quickly and thinking slowly, you know, there are people who um, are diagnosed a lot of time with um, hyperactivity. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, attention deficit disorder, it, it is a real thing, but for some, you know, it might be overdiagnosed. And for some people also, I think that hyperactivity is sometimes this demonized thing, but it could be that it's this quick thinking because you need, if there's an issue, you need people who are going to, uh, without thinking, go and storm the castle. <laughs> you know, that was, that was handy. Uh, and not come up with a plan, but just be on the ropes going up the side, you know, um, and um, w without uh, examining the potential pitfalls. So I think there has been a purpose for both and working together and having both together uh, and sharing your skills and your talents, you know, is a good thing, both and. And that leads me to this other thought, and then I want to come back to you, is that um, when you exist with both, this both and you have skills and I recognize them and they come in handy and you have these other skills and I recognize them and they come in handy. Let's work together and, and make this work. Then you don't have an either or you're wrong. We're right. Mm. You have a, wow, you have something that could be really useful. I have something that's really useful. Let's figure out how to incorporate this into something that's, more successful having it both and but that for some people leads them into this gray space where they have to look at things in a way that they're not comfortable with because they need for somebody to be right and somebody to be wrong yeah. and they need for somebody to be better and somebody to be worse and that's when things start i think to fall apart yeah you're reminding me of, in my thinking that's the the difference between hierarchical thinking versus lateral or communal thinking mm -hmm. and that's that's also we, we a lot of us I, I think in western schools have been indoctrinated to think hierarchically because we've been from the moment you start learning you get a grade and some people are getting a's and some people are getting b's and some people are the teacher's favorite and some people are not so we, we're right away indoctrinated into a mindset which is hierarchical that's once one mindset Another mindset um, that I think is quite interesting to think of in terms of indoctrination is the indoctrinated idea that if you can understand something, that that, 
that, that knowing something is, is good, is equal to good, and that un uncertainty is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I really uh, was awakened, I, I feel, by my, my reading of, of a great uh, German-Jewish philosopher, Martin Buber. Mm -hmm. And Buber talked about um, what he called the kingdom of holy, with a, with a capital H, the kingdom of holy insecurity. And he said that when people allow themselves to enter a state of insecurity and, and accept that, he said that that's where they meet God or the ultimate source of creativity. However you conceptualize God, it's not, for this purpose, not so important to whether God exists or doesn't exist. But the, the point being that uh, I found that idea thrilling that when you embrace insecurity and you accept that insecurity is a fundamental principle in life that there's so many things we just cannot control and will never understand the paradox is that that can actually free you to take risks to do things because you know you're never going to have a certain answer anyway so you may as well just be bold like Brene Brown says in her book in a um, uh, daring greatly mm. and so I've come to think of us as, as, as a Western civilization, civilization, and maybe in parts of, of, of countries that I know nothing about, as having been indoctrinated into thinking of that uncertainty is a bad thing. And I've read, so I, I just want to get, use that as, a, as an example of the many ways we're indoctrinated that we just take for granted. We think hierarchy is necessarily a good thing. Now, hierarchy may sometimes be a good thing. I mean, we do have a more organized society if we have a leader. If a team has a captain and everybody agrees with that hierarchical authority, the team is liable to do better because there's somebody who's guiding them and making suggestions and so on. Right? But there are times that hierarchy is a very bad thing because you get uh, people underneath the, at the bottom of the hierarchy are not able to fully express themselves or to become fully empowered. Mm -hmm. But something I say to clients often, and I know it's a stretch for them, I often say to them that one of the reasons you're, so in, you're feeling so much anxiety is because you are operating on the belief that if you could only know what the problem is and guarantee your future, then you would be okay. And this is kind of a, quite a deep concept, but actually I found myself, and I'm, I'm smiling because it took me years to understand this, that the more I embrace that I will never understand you know, that I, I actually understand so little. That's why I, I smile a bit when the people who were offended by our talk last time, it, it's, I smile because um, I actually uh, think of all knowledge as being very, very kind of fluid. You know, I, I could talk for hours about all the things we, we think we understand, you know, health, health fads, for example, right? One minute, this is good for you and then it's bad for you. And then we know, sure. I know so many people have gone to doctors and one doctor says this and another doctor says that, or, you know, our, our knowledge is so flawed. And, and, but the paradox is that if we can humbly accept that, we can actually go about life not expecting perfection, not expecting a guaranteed result for anything we do, but give yourself fully to it anyway. Mm. And, and which, which ironically, increases your chances of actually fully fully manifesting yourself because you're not so obsessed with the outcome it's a it's a paradox 
So what, how that's related to indoctrination is I, I think it's a more recent thought for me, actually, Rachel, that I, I think that, in, that we've been indoctrinated to think that if we just do this, if we please teachers, if we get good grades, if we then go to the right college, if we then do this and then do that, we're going to have everything we want. But that's actually not true at all, because sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't happen. Right. right. So I'm, I'm just sharing that as, as, as another way to think about it, about indoctrination at the most basic level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. That somehow, uh, and I know we can, we can finish up in just a moment, but that somehow if you're given an equation to follow, it's absolute until it's not. Until it's not. <laughs> right. And, and so I think it's good to know that A plus B doesn't always equal C. And it doesn't always mean that you're going to have a career and it doesn't always mean you're going to get into a certain college or whatever else, whatever else matters to you, or that you're going to be happy. Uh, and I think also that there, there are people who suffer more with anxiety than others who really do want to be able to throw themselves into something that feels more absolute, where they're not left needing to ask themselves the questions that are so intolerable and overwhelming to have to ask. And so those are the people who might come to my office or your office and say, tell me what to do. Right. And tell me if this was a good idea or a bad idea or if I should marry this person or do this or whatever else. And, and I'm not the kind of therapist who will say, well, tell me why you're asking that question and just keep putting it back on the other person just because I would find this, that circular nature would drive me crazy. I would get up and leave. <laughs> the therapist did that to me. Stop doing that. But I think offering uh, some possible ideas, sort of going over some different mm. directions and mm. seeing how it feels, seeing how it fits, and that there isn't just one right answer is, uh, is good for people to know, but harder, harder for some. So I do see that some yeah. of the, the, the vitriolic and reactionary kinds of responses, to me, I see as more anxiety-based. Mm. Um, because it, it interferes with the absolute thinking and that causes anxiety. And they are not going to like people who are bringing them out of the absolute black and white, even for a second. It just feels too scary. So they kind of attacked psych in terms of their psyche yeah. and they're attacking back. It's sort of how I conceptualize it. Um, that's probably why I didn't bother me as much as it, it might have, but it, but what was interesting was, and I think that's why it was so important for us to be talking was that clearly there are a lot of people who have a lot of feelings about this in every direction. Um, and so I think it would be good for us to, to continue talking about it and the ideas of splitting and confirmation bias and how to make people aware of how much that happens on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. Um, and that it is just part of human nature, but it guides us in so many ways that we're not aware of. Mm -hmm. um, anything else before we finish up? Yeah, I'll just offer one more quote that I that I really like by Anais Nin. Mm. I think I said this last time, the, the, the philosopher and writer. So she said, um, she said, we never see things as they are. We see things as we are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that speaks to the subjectivity of, of, the, of, the, of reality. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think that the value of that, if, if people recognize that, that we're, we're all perceiving everything through a subjective 
through our lens, subjective lenses, we can then more humbly approach each other and more respectfully approach each other, even when we have differing perspectives, understanding that all that is just what it is. We're seeing things as we are. Mm-hmm. And if we can have respect for each other, we can we can learn from each other without having that anxiety that, that you were talking about. Mm. That's a wonderful way to end, to, to learn humbly and respectfully. That would make the world a lovely place. I'm all for it. <laughs> yes, you're here. Good to talk to you this morning and hope to talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Okay, all right, bye-bye. Bye. One more thing before you go. It was very interesting to speak with Arnold Block again and to have us go over the ideas of things like righteous indignation and that we're all wired for indoctrination and that sometimes this reactionary response to feeling like your ideas are being attacked or your way of life or what you think is important or your leanings or that your ingrained biases are being attacked in some kind of way can take on a life of its own. It was like the comments we received, especially from people who heard things that we didn't say and heard us talk about subjects we actually didn't cover at all and then took offense with us because we were talking about those things that somehow they heard but we never talked about or they assumed we were talking about even though they might not have listened to the episode. It's like building your case on a house of cards and it's a perfect example of confirmation bias. And by the way, the conversations and arguments from listeners and from some of those who just didn't like the subject matter are still on my Facebook page, uh, Rachel Bernstein LMFT, although I will probably be taking them down at some point soon because it has gotten extensive and uh, it has kind of devolved into personal attacks back and forth. I am not involved in those dialogues at all and uh, neither is Arnold. People are now at this point just talking to each other. Although I have learned a lot from some of the responses uh, where people were sharing about their own history and that was very interesting. So. When we deal with confirmation bias, as Arnold and I spoke about briefly during this podcast episode, we deal with the fact that people have this ability or need to just hear what they want to hear and read what they want to read and understand things in a way they think it was intended. And then they favor that information, whether or not that was the information that was actually shared that confirms their pre-existing beliefs or their biases. But it's quite a tricky thing because you can try to fight against it, but if ideas are repeatedly ingrained in someone and there's also this idea that somehow you are wrong for even approaching those subjects or wanting to discuss them in a way that might be uncomfortable to the listener, then the response to it can be not only that you are wrong, but it can be seen as a personal attack, as though you are personally attacking them, their beliefs, and somehow trying to rob them of a particular core belief that might make them feel self-righteous or that might make them feel good, might make them feel protected somehow in the world. Things are black and white and they want it to stay that way, very, very clear about who's right and who's wrong. And it also is a message that they think justifies their previous behavior and their assumptions and their prejudices and they're not quite ready to have that taken away. So, I wanted to give you two other examples of confirmation bias. One is from this professor I know who did a study where he wanted to see if people would just read what they wanted to read because 
they felt good and reassured and supported by having information that seemed to be from an official source, reinforced the beliefs they had and reinforced the messages they had in their mind and what they were taught. This professor gave out an article that he ascribed to a particular and official sounding source that he actually made up, but he did it on purpose. He wanted to give people reading it the impression of some kind of scholarly authenticity so that people felt validated and vindicated when they saw their ideas confirmed in what seemed like an official document. But what was fascinating about it was that the first part of the article showed confirmation of one side of the argument only, a stance that was in favor of immigration reform. And then halfway through, the professor purposely shifted gears 180 and started the second half of the article with a paragraph that started with, on the other hand, comma, and then he continued, well, it gave totally the opposing viewpoint against immigration reform. And then he asked people to write what they thought the article had been about and what they learned and what the messages were and the people who had viewpoints regarding immigration reform that matched the first part of the article said the article was just about that and really nothing more. Because most of them stopped reading the article once they saw that their viewpoints were reflected and confirmed. And those who were against immigration reform kept reading, read all the way through the article, and then said the article was about that, was about their position, and supported their points. It seems that that happened because those people disregarded much of what was written in the first part of the article and kept skimming until they finally saw what they were looking for. So this happens all the time in conversations when watching the news and reading an article, watching a movie, having an argument, or listening to this podcast, clearly. Another example that was very troubling to me, though, was an article I read. When I was living in New York in the 90s, I was reading in the New York Times about a group of school children who were sent from a parochial school to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. on a field trip for the day. And, as most of you know, this is a museum that teaches people about the horrific history of the Holocaust, the politics at the time, how this came to be, the tragedy, the losses, and the sadness and so much of it is disturbing and troubling and heavy. And so when this reporter doing the story for the New York Times asked some of these school children from the parochial school what their impressions were from the museum, uh, he kind of couldn't believe what they were saying because their impressions were, well, this is what happens to people when you don't believe the way you should believe. So while some people were murdered because they had a different belief system, some were murdered because they were from a different place, because they were gay, for a variety of other nonsensical and crazy reasons, that was what these school children focused on, the belief system. The reporter noticed there wasn't sadness in them necessarily. There wasn't that kind of solemn countenance that you see in many of the visitors there, but rather kind of this confident stride and a confident sense of confirmation and affirmation that because they believe the quote-unquote right way, this wouldn't happen to them. And that was their takeaway from going for the whole day to the Holocaust Museum. That they are safe because they're taught to believe things as they should, and this is what happens to those who don't. 
It was an unbelievable moment to read this article and to see that you can be standing right next to someone experiencing something thinking that they're having a similar experience in a similar way, but it can be so different because we all see things through the lens of our thoughts, our teachings, our fears, our needs, our leanings, and that's what's so important to remember. That people will stop gathering further information when the evidence gathered or what they think is evidence that they've gathered so far confirms their views and their prejudices and what they want or need to be true. It's a good thing to know about the people we share the planet with, that we can't make assumptions that we will be moved or educated or motivated or sensitized in the same way and by the same things. But we can still try to teach each other and to impart ideas and to do it in a good and respectful way if we feel the message is important enough to share. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page, or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. Rachel.